Welcome to Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Sadai, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a collaborative or partnership effort between the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And uh, we're delighted to be partnering with them on this program. And you'll be hearing later about Longevity Foundation. Some of you may know all about them, but you're going to hear, and some of you may not. So it'll be a wonderful chance to hear about them. Um, and today's program is on small cell lung cancer treatment update, and it's part one of living with small cell lung cancer. And today's program um, is um, is supported um, by uh, Jazz Pharmaceuticals Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of this uh, of this series. Um, and um, we also have uh, many of you on the call today. There's over 156 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, uh, frontier, and suburban communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Lithuania, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And um, we're delighted that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, before we introduce our first speaker, I would like to ask you all just a few questions, um, just to get a sense of what you um, know about this topic, about small cell lung cancer, before the program starts. Um, and this will help us to tailor the programs to best meet your needs in going forward in 2022. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. And those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to see the questions and will be able to rate your answers as well. So these, particularly these questions are for people who are live streaming. I understand an overview of small cell lung cancer and the current standard of care for small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of chemotherapy and radiation oncology in the treatment of small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And again, for those of you live streaming, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate them as well. And the next question is, I understand how to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. And again, for those live streaming, you'll be able to see the questions and rate the questions. I understand when to call the healthcare team about treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, pain, and quality of life concerns for small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now this will be the last question. I understand the importance of clinical trials for small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I'd like to thank everyone for participating in these questions. Um, it will help us um, as we plan programs going forward. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grala. Dr. Grala is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grala will be addressing an overview of small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID-19, communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grala. Well, hello, and thank you, Carolyn. Uh, I'm Richard Grala. I'm a medical oncologist, a thoracic medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center and Jacoby Medical Center in New York. I have the pleasure of starting us off, and we will discuss many areas of small cell lung cancer, including particular aspects of this malignancy and its treatment. Ms. Brown and Dr. Messner will also give us some valuable information <clears throat> on resources to aid our patients and families. We're fortunate to have a really knowledgeable and helpful panel on the call today. 
So I'm going to introduce the problem of small cell lung cancer as we see it today, and my colleagues will focus more on key issues, including newer treatment concepts for this cancer. First of all, we still have the issues of COVID-19 as this program is being presented in May 2022. All of us are aware of the greater and lesser presence of COVID-19 depending on our specific location and community. But let's remember that lung cancer is an additional risk factor with COVID-19. I cannot overemphasize the crucial importance of vaccination with the life-saving vaccines now available, including booster vaccinations for people with lung cancer and for those close to these individuals. All of us should have home test kits on hand. These are available free of charge in the U.S. at www.covidtests.gov and at most pharmacies. And should be aware that at the first sign for these high-risk groups, please notify your doctor and such additional treatments as Paxlovid pills at home may be indicated. Additionally, consider accessing the cancer care programs dealing specifically with COVID and cancer, which are quite available online in the cancer care archives. Related and new is the way that all oncology units have gone to remarkable lengths to enhance safety for your visits. So communicate closely regarding visits or televisits, treatment and testing. Your team has your best interests firmly in mind. Televisits remain a good idea for many individuals with cancer for some of their visits. All oncology facilities have become increasingly skilled with televisits. Dr. O'Donnell will discuss televisits, including preparation for these visits, and many other related and contributory aspects in helpful detail very shortly. Lung cancer is divided into two basic types, small cell or non-small cell. And there are further divisions within these types. From a biopsy, the pathologist can tell the difference under a microscope, and often this diagnosis is enhanced by additional laboratory testing on the specimen. Just a few decades ago, lung cancer was seen as a malignancy that affected mainly men. Today, we see that lung cancer occurs in nearly the same number of women as men. It's not better to have either small cell or non-small cell lung cancer, they just have some differences that are important to know in planning for treatment. While lung cancer occurs mainly in people who smoke, this is particularly true for small cell lung cancer. Please be aware that it's not the fault of the individual. No one ever wanted to get lung cancer. Nearly all smoking starts in adolescence or even before, and then it becomes highly addicting. These youngsters never contemplated consequences of this common habit in themselves and in their peers or that it would be so difficult to stop. Of course, not smoking at all and smoking cessation make a lot of sense, but it's not always easy. We as family members need to understand, encourage, and support. Among the differences between small cell and non-small cell lung cancer is the fact that small cell does not stay silent very long. It nearly always presents with symptoms like increasing cough or shortness of breath or chest pain, lack of appetite or lack of energy, or other issues that are new for the person. Only rarely does it remain asymptomatic. This reflects the fact that small cell lung cancer can be a rapidly growing cancer that can spread or metastasize early in the disease course. That's a really important consideration because it helps in determining treatment approaches. You're probably aware that cancers are typically staged as stage one, two, three, or four, but most of the time such staging is not used for small cell lung cancer. Instead, an older terminology is often used with just two designations called limited, about a third of people, or extensive. Limited means that we can only see the cancer in the chest area in which it started and extensive means that it's found beyond that side of the chest or its lymph nodes, usually involving other organs. So as we mentioned a moment ago, uh, in that small cell typically spreads early, at least microscopically, even when we call it limited, surgery is rarely the treatment of choice. This is different than with non-small cell lung cancer in which an important minority of patients will benefit from surgery. 
This means that treatment which can affect the whole body, such as systemic therapy, is the cornerstone of treatment for small cell lung cancer. Paradoxically and surprisingly, because small cell lung cancer grows rapidly, it can respond very quickly to systemic treatments such as chemotherapy and can respond more easily than non-small cell. Sometimes we see some symptomatic response in this very symptomatic cancer within days of starting treatment. So proper diagnosis without delay and starting treatment soon can have real benefit for many people. For most people, there is no better way to get relief than starting treatment. Dr. Hanna will discuss systemic treatment approaches, including chemotherapy and some newer methods as well. Radiation therapy can enhance the systemic treatment in appropriate patients and also has an important symptom relief role for many people. Dr. Rosenzweig will outline the sophisticated radiation methods that are important to many patients. In addition to the symptoms that many have due to the cancer affecting the organs that it directly affects, small cell lung cancer often causes what are called paraneoplastic effects. These can occur with non-small cell but are seen more commonly with small cell. They can present as an imbalance of electrolytes in the blood, often seen as low sodium or hyponatremia, neurologic issues, hormone imbalances, or other problems. These, too, often respond to successful systemic treatment, or at least it stops its worsening. It should also be noted that marked improvements in preventing side effects of all these treatments have occurred, which can have a great effect on quality of life and make treatment safer and easier for many patients and families. I will look forward to Ms. Bearden's presentation outlining nutrition and hydration as well. And specifically in brief, it is worth noting that nausea and vomiting can be completely prevented in most individuals or at least greatly lessened. Radiation fields or areas can be more precisely determined which can lessen its side effects, to mention just a few improvements. As always, communicating well and fully with your treatment team can help everyone focus on the individual issues of importance to you and your family. My colleagues will enlarge on some of the prominent areas that I've just mentioned, and I'll look forward to their presentations. I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grella. That was an outstanding presentation, stellar, and really um, set the stage for the whole program today. And um, thank you for identifying what is coming next. So that's really terrific for everybody to be aware of. And so thank you. Thank you very much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Nasser Hanna, and Dr. Hanna is the Tom and Julie Wood Family Foundation Professor of Lung Cancer, Clinical Research Professor of Medicine, Vice Chief Oncology and Malignant Hematology, Service Line Leader, Hematology Oncology, Indiana University School of Medicine. And Dr. Hanna will be addressing the role of chemotherapy novel chemotherapy agents and clinical trials in small cell lung cancer, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in small cell lung cancer, key questions to ask your healthcare team when and who to call on your healthcare team about treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hannah. Oh, thank you, Carolyn, and thank you, Dr. Grala, for that great overview. So uh, my assignment is to talk about how we can treat uh, small cell lung cancer with uh, cancer therapeutics. And as Dr. Grala mentioned, uh, small cell lung cancer is usually divided into those patients who have disease limited to an area that can be radiated or disease that's considered more extensive. And that usually means if the cancer has metastasized through the bloodstream to some distant site. Regardless of those two scenarios, chemotherapy is the mainstay of treatment. And chemotherapy is highly active uh, in patients who have small cell lung cancer. The small cell lung cancers are uh, usually pretty rapidly proliferating, meaning the cells are constantly turning over. And this makes the disease behave aggressively, but it also uh, makes the disease more susceptible to the effects of chemotherapy. So for many years now, the, the mainstay of chemotherapy has consisted of a two-drug regimen 
one of those drugs is a platinum agent, and uh, many physicians will use cisplatin. Others will use carboplatin. Their effects are quite similar, and, and most people can use those two interchangeably. And that platinum agent is combined with a second drug. There are two drugs which are, are both uh, equally effective, but different side effects. The one that's most commonly used in the United States is a drug called etoposide. And uh, in other parts of the world, uh, a second drug called can is commonly administered. The chemotherapy is usually all given intravenously. The more commonly used regimen in the United States, the platinum agent and the etoposide, are both given intravenously on the first day of treatment. And then on the second and the third day as an outpatient, the second drug, etoposide, is given. And that combination has been uh, the mainstay of therapy for many years. It's repeated every three weeks. And, and the reason why we wait three weeks is because of the side effects of, of the drugs. The, the drugs cause injury to the bone marrow. The bone marrow is the, is, the, uh, is the area inside the bones, primarily in the pelvis and in the back, that are responsible for producing white blood cells and red blood cells and platelets. And so the chemotherapy does temporarily injure the bone marrow from producing those cells. And the bone marrow has already made some cells that are living and working. And as soon as those cells sort of carry out their life cycle, the patient will get a low white blood cell count and sometimes a low red blood cell count and a low platelet count. So we have to allow time for the bone marrow to recover and it usually takes about three weeks. So as soon as the white blood cell count and the platelet count primarily have recovered, we're, we're ready to do another cycle of therapy. Now, sometimes we can enhance the uh, recovery of those cells by giving a, um, a, a medicine that stimulates the bone marrow to recover a little bit more quickly. Uh, that drug is called Nupagen or Nulasta. It can be given as injections or even uh, something uh, that can be placed on the body that can be programmed to give an, inje an injection within 24 hours of completing the last day of chemotherapy. That regimen is uh, repeated every 21 weeks, usually after two cycles of therapy, a CT scan is repeated, and in almost all instances, we'll see improvement in the disease. The, the x-rays will look better, the tumors will look smaller, and in most cases, patients will uh, get relief of the troubling symptoms that they may have been having prior to treatment. Assuming that's the case, we proceed and do a third cycle of the three-day regimen, and then three weeks later, do a fourth cycle, and, and usually repeat a scan as well. Now, if the disease is shrinking after two cycles and shrinking even more after four cycles, and the patient is tolerating therapy very well, we sometimes will go on and give two additional cycles. Again, a lot of it is the context of what's going on with the patient in terms of how they're feeling and the symptoms that uh, the disease was causing at the time of diagnosis. We usually do not continue beyond six cycles of that regimen simply because clinical studies have, have really not proven that, that, that that's worth it, that, the, that there are continued benefits for patients uh, that are worth it beyond the cumulative side effects of patient's uh, experience. Now, in the last few years, another type of therapy has entered into the picture to treat patients with small cell, and that is immunotherapy. And there are two drugs that are approved. One of them is called Dervalimab, and the other is called Atezolizumab. And these are given intravenously as well. They're given with the chemotherapy on the first day of each three-week cycle. And the addition of these immunotherapy drugs, which essentially help your immune system to fight cancer, increases the ability of the chemotherapy to control the disease for longer and does help people live longer. And there are some instances 
in which the immunotherapy can have very long-lasting effects. Now, of course, these treatments do have potential side effects. Some of them are uh, side effects that we can mitigate, such as low white blood cell count by giving injections to help stimulate the bone marrow. We can certainly support patients who need blood transfusions and rarely platelet transfusions. We are quite good at preventing nausea in the vast majority of patients, although we, we haven't perfected this in all patients, but, but have done quite good at preventing nausea. Some patients do get some mouth sores, some patients will have some diarrhea, and some patients will have fatigue. Many of these side effects are dose-related to the chemotherapy, and the chemotherapy itself can be modified accordingly. The immune therapy drugs can cause an overstimulation of the immune system against the body's normal tissues, and any tissue will be at risk. So sometimes patients will get inflammation of the skin, which may cause a rash. They may get inflammation of the joints, which may cause some joint aches. But it's possible they could get inflammation really of any body system, including the colon, resulting in diarrhea, the lungs, resulting in coughing or shortness of breath, or some of the organs that produce hormones. And so the physicians that are caring for the patient will closely monitor for these side effects. And if they are severe, these side effects will have to be reversed with the use of steroids. Lastly, I, I want to talk a little bit about key questions that you should ask your healthcare team. And I, I think these decisions on how to proceed with treatment really require an informed patient and caregivers. And so we need to uh, discuss what our goals of care are, what are our hopes, what are our expectations, what are our priorities, uh, what is your primary goal. Um, and uh, what are your uh, what is your uh, you know your uh, your willingness to have uh, certain side effects to achieve those goals? Um, you want to ask your uh, healthcare providers how long do you think this will help me? Um, what is the best case scenario? Have you ever seen patients who have uh, done really well? And 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 tell me about uh, those circumstances. Um, talk to me about what side effects I can experience or, or, or I might experience, and, and who do I call if I'm experiencing those side effects. And um, I, I think it's very important for you to have a healthcare team that you can readily call that's responsive to your questions in a very short order. And I, I wouldn't wait until your symptoms get real severe to call your doctors. If you're having pain or you're having nausea or you're having diarrhea or you're having fever, you, you should call your healthcare team immediately. And even if they're low grade, sometimes we can prevent those side effects from becoming severe if we can intervene early. So I will hand it back to Caroline. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hannah. That was really what an outstanding presentation, also stellar. And just really um, the information that you've given to our participants about their treatment and about managing side effects is invaluable. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. And Dr. Rosenzweig is professor and chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, system chair, Mount Sinai Health System. And Dr. Rosenzweig will be addressing the role of radiation oncology in small cell lung cancer, types of radiation treatments, and how research increases your treatment options for small cell lung cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Rosenzweig. Hi, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for Dr. Grawl and Dr. Hanna for uh, doing all the hard work, and I just uh, can follow up about talking about the radiation. Uh, so just as was discussed, we usually talk about small cell lung cancer in one of two contexts, either as a limited disease where the tumor hasn't spread outside of the lung and extensive stage disease um, where it has. And in both situations, radiation can be of benefit. Um, so when the tumor is limited, when it's just in the lung, uh, we've found that giving radiation can be very helpful for controlling the tumor 
and help people uh, live longer. Usually we want to start the radiation as soon as possible, um, you know, in order to, you know, get going on treatment. Uh, but because radiation takes a little time uh, to, to get planned out and there has to be a scan and um, uh, some work done to, to make sure the treatment's being done uh, safely, usually the chemotherapy gets started first and the radiation starts a week or two into the whole process. And then the chemotherapy and the radiation are done at the same time uh, for the be beginning of the treatment. And then when the radiation is completed, the chemotherapy continues, just as uh, Dr. Hanna was describing. The radiation can be done in two different schedules. It can be done twice a day for three weeks or once a day uh, for six weeks. And different physicians have different preferences on how to do it. Um, and if it's uh, convenient for people to come in twice a day, we, we try to um, administer the radiation that way. If it's uh, not as convenient, then we can just do it once a day, and that and that works just as well too. Um, at the uh, there there are different ways we can deliver the radiation. There's 3D radiation and intensity modulated radiation are the two most common ways uh, to deliver it. And, and most of the time, uh, we try to use an intensity modulated approach just to shield normal tissue from the radiation. Uh, some of the other techniques of radiation that are sometimes advertised, uh, such as um, uh, stereotactic radiation, are not really used in small cell uh, lung cancer that much, except for some very special circumstances. So typically, it's going to be more standard radiation, um, external beam radiation. There's a special type of radiation called proton radiation, which is used um, and also in very specific circumstances where the tumor might be very close to a, a critical structure um, or very sensitive structure or someone's getting radiation for the second time. But it's it's fairly unusual to use proton radiation for small cell lung cancer, um, except in very rare instances. And again, your typical radiation machine delivering external beam radiation is, is going to be what's best for the treatment of small cell lung cancer. Um, when radiation is completed, uh, sometimes we consider giving radiation to the head after the radiation, radiation to the brain. And this is not because there's disease in the brain, or the, uh, but there is a risk that there might be some cancer cells in the brain that the chemotherapy wasn't able to um, attack and get rid of. Uh, there's um, a lining around the cells in the brain called the blood-brain barrier, and it's what prevents a large uh, molecules from getting through and affecting the brain. And, and sometimes chemotherapy cannot penetrate this barrier. Uh, radiation is not affected by the barrier, so we we do occasionally give radiation to the brain um, to destroy any cells that might be there that are too small to be seen on a scan. This is called prophylactic radiation to the brain. And that's usually a two-week course of treatment uh, that, that we do. Um, it does have some side effects. Radiation to the brain is a little bit uh, tiring, and sometimes people's uh, short-term memory can be affected. So it's, a, it's definitely a discussion to have with your radiation oncologist to make sure um, it's the right decision. When the tumor has spread outside of the lung in what we call um, extensive stage lung cancer, um, radiation does have a part, it's, um, but in very uh, specific circumstances. So um, just as was being described, uh, typically people are going to get chemotherapy and immunotherapy in this situation. And sometimes the radiation is used afterwards to um, treat any areas in the lung uh, that might not have shrunk completely after chemotherapy and immunotherapy. 
or if the tumor has spread to another part of the body that's causing pain or difficulty, uh, we can give some radiation there to help palliate any symptoms there. And also, in, in certain circumstances, uh, we also give radiation uh, to the head, the prophylactic radiation I was talking about before, because there is a risk of uh, tumor cells in the brain that we don't see on, a, on an MRI scan. Um, so I know I'm being a little vague when we use radiation in extensive stage disease, and that's because it's on a individual by individual basis, and each person who comes in to see a radiation oncologist is its own separate discussion as to whether the radiation is going to be helpful in that specific circumstance. Uh, but basically, um, we can give radiation to the chest, to the areas where the disease has spread, and to the brain. And we have to figure out working with the medical oncologist and, and talking to the patient and the family, what's the best choice for that specific situation. Uh, finally, I wanted to talk about um, how research increases treatment options. And I think, you know, the most obvious way to discuss that is all of the treatments that we've talked about today, which chemotherapy is the right chemotherapy to use, uh, do we use immunotherapy in small cell lung cancer, how do we deliver the radiation, does radiation to the head help, all of those um, options, which are now standard parts of treatment, were discovered because of the research that has been done in the past. So a, a typical research protocol will look at a standard treatment and whether or not to add in a new treatment such as uh, radiation to the head or whether or not to give immunotherapy. And that's how we see if it's wor it works or whether it's beneficial. So, um, you know, so uh, a few years ago, the only way to have possibly gotten immunotherapy if you had small cell lung cancer was to have been part of a clinical trial, to have been part of a research trial. Um, so definitely being part of these trials can uh, increase the treatment options uh, for small cell lung cancer. Uh, there are a number of uh, oncology groups out there that have very interesting and exciting trials in small cell lung cancer, and that's definitely something you should speak to to your uh, care team about whether or not it's appropriate for you or if there's a trial that addresses your specific situation. Uh, thank you very much, and I look forward to the questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenzweig. That was really excellent and really, um, again, outstanding and stellar presentation and really um, identifying the important role of radiation oncology in the treatment of small cell lung cancer and, um, and also um, the importance of research and clinical trials, really. Um, and so thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during um, the, uh, the Q&A. Thanks so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is Director, Lifestyle Clinic, Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Director, Mass General Cancer Center's Survivorship Program, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. O'Donnell will be addressing the role of activity, movement, lifestyle, and quality of life concerns, roadmap to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you very much for the warm introduction. It's lovely to be here and have the opportunity to talk to you about lifestyle medicine. So what is lifestyle medicine? Lifestyle medicine is the incorporation of evidence-based recommendations regarding exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress, substance use into your, your daily living. Um, and when patients are diagnosed with cancer, they often have questions about what they can do in their lives uh, that might modify their outcomes or help them feel better as they go through their treatment. In our program, uh, we talk to patients a lot about nutrition, exercise, and sleep, and stress in particular. Um, and, you know, the benefits of lifestyle medicine are that they there are evidence that show that you can improve um, quality of life, decrease levels of depression and anxiety, and improve fatigue. 
one of the most common questions that patients ask is what type of exercise or physical activity should they do? I think, you know, the, depending on where you are in your cancer care, the first uh, basic rule is try to avoid inactivity. And when people get a diagnosis, there are a lot of people who rush in to try and help, uh, whether it be through cooking meals or doing the laundry and, you know, really challenge yourself to continue to do your activities of daily living to the extent you can. It's a little bit use it or lose it. Uh, and, but, you know, trying to stay active, avoid sedentary time, uh, can be very beneficial. Um, you know, in terms of keeping your energy up and, and also um, maintaining your physical reserve. I often tell patients, listen, if you don't have it in you to go out and exercise, turn on some music and dance. It feels good. It lifts your mood um, and it can get your heart rate up and give you some of those endorphins and, and good feelings uh, that exercise can as well. When when thinking about exercise, we encourage people to try to do Try to get to a moderate intensity level where, you know, you're not speaking complete sentences, um, maybe getting a few words in if you're to go out there. Exercise can take a variety of different forms. The most important thing is to do something that you enjoy so you're likely to do it. Getting out and walking, particularly now as, as summer is approaching and enjoying the good weather, um, finding other people to partner with to do activities can also not only enhance the experience, but keep you uh, doing it and, um, you know, trying to incorporate some strength exercises as well, uh, which would help with um, balance and gait stability are also important factors uh, in thinking about exercise. A lot of patients want to know about nutrition, some basic principles that we often recommend are trying to focus on a plant-based diet where two-thirds of your diet comes from fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, trying to limit red meat consumption to no more than one per week, um, and trying to really uh, avoid refined sugars, adding sugar uh, to your coffee, your tea, drinking sugary beverages, or avoiding refined uh, processed foods that contain things like white flour, our general guidelines for nutrition recommendations. In terms of sleep, you know, cancer diagnosis can uh, be challenging for sleep and sleep quality, whether it be because of some of the medicines and their side effects. Um, you know, sometimes it's the anxiety of, of thinking about um, concerns, and even other times um, it can be symptoms of the cancer that can impact sleep. So. Um, really trying to think about good sleep practices, talking to your doctor about some of these factors that may be impacting your sleep so that they can help, whether it's adjusting doses of medicines or potentially prescribing medicines that alleviate the symptoms that are impairing your sleep quality. Finally, I've been asked to touch base on preparing for your virtual visit. As I mentioned, it's very important to your oncologist and your team to understand you and, and your questions. And very often visits, uh, we have a lot to cover with labs and with uh, treatment concerns. But come prepared with a list. And if it's a virtual visit, bring family members in um, so, you know, we can really get the whole picture and understand what your needs are. And make sure you write them down. I know we all sometimes go into appointments, lots of questions. The minute we get it there, we forget them, and then remember as soon as we're in the parking lot. So make sure to write those questions down so that you have the opportunity to discuss the things that are important to you, understanding that your physicians really want to treat your whole person uh, and make your cancer experience as good as they possibly can. Um, thank you so much for inviting me, and um, have a lovely afternoon. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was a lovely presentation, just really outstanding and stellar, and lots of good tips for people. So thank you so much. Um, thank you. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairden, and Ms. Bairden is a, an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bairden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, and it's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bairden. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, nutrition and hydration are essential. And um, some things that, that really become important when we're looking at nutrition is that you have the energy to do the things that you enjoy, that you feel good, and 
um, that you know your your strength is in place and you're not losing muscle mass. And so some things that we focus on as dietitians is really about helping you meet your nutritional goals, and that's nutrition and hydration, um, to where you are right now. Um, we want to meet you where you are. Uh, there's a lot of great ideas out there when it comes to nutrition, but each patient's an individual. And I think it's really important for each person to be looked at that way when we're talking about diet because each course of treatment is different for each patient. Some patients may have some different side effects and in, impact their eating um, in one way, and another may have side effects that impact it in a different way. And so one thing we do know is that when you're going through cancer treatment, that in you're losing weight, we know that a lot of times you're not getting enough energy in, so enough calories and protein in. And a dietitian can sit down with you and really kind of help look at what your needs are and individualize a plan that's best for you. Now, one thing when I see patients who are undergoing treatment for lung cancer is fatigue is sometimes um a very common side effect, shortness of breath, um, energy to do the things that you need to do sometimes just for daily living is impacted. And so um, some things to consider are, you know, small frequent meals, focusing on foods that are more calorically dense, um, maybe easy to prepare foods or foods that don't require a lot of preparation at all, um, maintaining hydration, and oftentimes considering beverages that have calories in them so that you're kind of getting two birds with one stone, hydration and caloric intake. Um, when you lose weight quickly or um, unintentionally, oftentimes we see a change in muscle mass, and that's one thing that really is concerning because our muscle is so important in giving us the endurance and the ability to be mobile and be independent. Um, and so when we're talking about about weight management as far as monitoring your weight, that's usually one of the most important things that we're monitoring is also your muscle mass. And so I have patients all the time that tell me, oh, I, I have weight on me. I can I can lose 20 pounds. I've been trying to do it for 10 years. But what they what I want you to know is that sometimes weight loss at a high speed or an, unex, an intentional rate is not always the best thing for you. So that might be part of the conversation as well with your healthcare team. Um, if there's anything is specific, any side effects, any taste changes or dry mouth or difficulty swallowing, anything like that, be sure to talk with your healthcare team about it. We can also modify diets and talk about texture changes to help making eating a lot easier and more um, tolerable. So there are a lot of side effects, and oftentimes your doctor has given you medications to help address these side effects. Be sure to understand how to take your medications. Um, oftentimes this is one of the things I see with patients is there's so much happening that really having that second set of ears and a documentation um, of some of the instruction they've been giving to really help know, okay, am I taking this medication the way I'm supposed to to help with some of these side effects is very important. And um, the last thing I was asked to talk about was hydration, and dehydration is something that is very common amongst patients because we are focusing so much on eating. Oftentimes, hydration gets um, kind of left out of the conversation, but a lot of treatments can actually increase your hydration needs, things like radiation, um, and a good kind of rule of thumb is each person needs right around 8 to 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. And a fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, such as milk, water, sports drinks. And so um, if you become dehydrated, it can oftentimes increase some of the side effects that you may be experiencing, such as nausea, fatigue. It can make you feel dizzy and lightheaded. So it's real important that you're mindful of getting in that fluid as well. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to helping you through this journey. So please know your team and how to reach them and reach out to them sooner, um, sooner rather than later just to help us um, help you as quickly as possible. Thanks for allowing me to be part of today's presentation. I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was really wonderful. Just a great presentation. Um, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Katie Brown, and she's with the Longevity Foundation. She's Senior Vice President, Support and Survivorship Programs, Longevity Foundation. And uh, Ms. Brown has partnered with us on today's program, and 
Um, she'll be discussing the Longevity Foundation's free programs and services and really how to get how to contact them. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Brown. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me to join the program today. I have an emotional connection with small cell lung cancer, having been the caregiver for my dad so many years ago. So what's encouraging to me today are, are all the advancements in research, side effect management, and number of support resources for patients who are living with the disease and their families. Patients impacted by lung cancer can get help navigating their cancer from our Longevity's website, from our lung cancer helpline, and from other uh, small cell lung cancer survivors and caregiver mentors who have been where they are. We have a peer-to-peer -peer lifeline support program where we can connect small cell lung cancer patients with small cell lung cancer survivors and caregivers to other mentors. And this is peer-to-peer -peer support where they can get and give advice encouragement and provide hope. We also have virtual patient Zooms four times a week, as well as a small cell lung cancer specific meetup every single month. Anyone with lungs can get lung cancer regardless of a smoking history. And we just want patients to know um, that they don't have to go through it alone. So you can visit us at www.longevity.org. You can call our helpline at 844-360-5864, or you can email us directly or just uh, post in the chat and somebody will get, get to you right away. And thank you so much for inviting me to join the program, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Brown. That was really outstanding, and it's such a wonderful resource. So some of you know about the Longevity Foundation, have taken advantage of the services, but if you haven't, it's really your go-to organization to get really the most up-to-date information on, on lung cancer. It's just a wonderful resource. And now, um, before we move on, I just want to ask all of you um, a few questions. Um, and um, we're going to um, just move on to uh, just a few questions for all of you. And um, so, um, and for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to respond to the questions. So um, the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of small cell lung cancer and current standard of care for small cell lung cancer in the context of COVID-19 one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of chemotherapy and radiation oncology in the treatment of small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And again, for those of you live streaming, you'll be able to see these questions and respond to them. The next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to use their tips and suggestions to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of when and how to reach and who to call on the healthcare team about treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, pain, and quality of life concerns for small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be our last question as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials for small cell lung cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I wanna thank everyone for participating in these questions that really will help us as we move forward planning future programs. I do wanna say just a few words about cancer care and then I'm gonna write on to your questions. So please start, some of you have already put in your questions, but if you haven't, please do submit your questions for our speakers. Um, so um, Cancer Care is a national uh, organization that provides free programs and services for all cancers, including 
small cell lung cancer as well. And um, our services are provided primarily by oncology social workers. And we have a hope line, which many people call, it's an 800 number. Um, and they're able to then, our oncology social worker answers the phone. The person usually asks a particular question, and then they're provided with all of the resources we, we offer. So what are those? We offer support to people. We offer online support groups. We offer practical and financial and co-payment assistance. We offer a pet assistance program for people who may have a cat or a dog that they're not able to care for because of their illness. They don't have anybody to help them at all with their with the needs of their animal, taking them for a walk or changing the litter box or getting food for their animal, our pet assistance program will help them. We have a case management program that will help. If we don't have the resource, they'll virtually take you to a place that offers those resources and you'll be able to access resources from them. And they'll stay with, they'll stay with you until that resource is met. Often it has to do with not having money for food for yourself or not having money for your housing or your rent or mortgage and other needs like that, very tangible needs that are very important to get met. And um, we do offer about 75 of these workshops per year on different types of cancers and topics. And we also have a number of publications. With that being said, we're now going to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And Sadai will explain to you how to queue up for questions and we'll let the questions begin today. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And a um, question for Dr. Um, Hannah. Um, has a possible relationship between small cell lung cancer and medullary thyroid cancer been studied? I have both and was told by an expert that one was possibly metastases of the other, but I'm certain which may, be, which may have come first. I'm currently five years, no evidence of disease. Could you comment on that, uh, Dr. Hanna? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So um, I am not aware of a link between the two you should be able to distinguish the two under the microscope. Um, it is possible that small cell lung cancer could metastasize to the thyroid. Uh, medullary thyroid cancer is actually a, a quite uncommon form of cancer. Uh, it's always possible that there is an underlying um, genetic predisposition to cancer. We, we know that cancer is a result of uh, sometimes environmental exposures combined with uh, sometimes inheritable abnormalities that predispose somebody to the effects of those environmental exposures. And so there may be an underlying sort of uh, theme that uh, resulted in getting two pretty uncommon cancers. Um, so I think that's the best I can do on that question. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, for Dr. Growler, is there anything um, to treat my shortness of breath? Well, um, uh, of course, it's an important question. Typically, when people respond to treatment for small cell lung cancer, uh, their shortness of breath does get better. But it's not uncommon for people who have small cell lung cancer to have emphysema, COPD. So it, uh, it may be that, uh, so the question would have to be, is the reason your shortness of breath is a problem, is it because of the lung cancer or because of the COPD or possibly even both? And so that's why individual care is important. If it is the COPD which makes, or, or the lung cancer makes the COPD worse, if the lung cancer is under control, you still need to have the COPD well treated. Or you could even have an exacerbation of the COPD like acute bronchitis or something. So I would make sure that you've communicated well to your doctor about this because obviously the cancer and the COPD 
if that's what you do have, uh, have different ways of, of treating them, and it should be addressed by your treatment team for sure. Excellent. Thank you. And then another question for Dr. Rosenzweig. What are the steps I should take to be prepared for treatment in general? Just perhaps some general guidelines. Uh, yes, yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so I think the most important thing is to discuss uh, with your doctor and the team what treatment you're going to be undergoing, whether it be chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or radiation, or even a, a surgical procedure, and, you know, and ask them, you know, what to expect, what you need to do. Uh, there are some some of it is very practical. There are some procedures where um, you can't eat the night before or, or after midnight, so you wouldn't want to uh, not know about that and, and have to have the procedure postponed or, or the, uh, the test postponed. Uh, there are some situations where you might need to take medicines up to a day before, so of course you'd want to make sure you're, you, you know about that so that the the treatment can be done safely. Um, pretty much every clinic that you would go to is going to be very well versed in this and um, and have uh, a lot of information for you to help you out along the way. Um, I always uh, say that the um, um, you know the the scariest day uh, is often the the first day. Because just like your first day at a new job or your first day at a school, um, you just don't know what to expect. You don't know where the bathrooms are. Uh, you don't know who the people are there. You don't know where to check in. Uh, sometimes there's just not going to be a good way around that other than knowing most places have a lot of support staff to point you in the right direction. Um, and there's usually a sign where, where the bathroom is so someone can point you there as well. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Good analogy. It's fantastic. Thank you. Very helpful to people. And um, for Dr. Grala, um, should you continue to get the COVID-19 boosters as well during any point of treatment or after? Yeah, I really think that it's a good idea. I think that um, uh, uh, getting your, your first booster when it is appropriate, so that's typically four months afterwards, uh, is a good idea, and staying current with them um, Right now, you know, there's some disagreement about the second booster, but I'd probably uh, make the uh, uh, leap to go ahead and get the second one uh, four months afterwards, provided you haven't had COVID in between um, uh, as such. So I would keep up with that uh, with my treatment with uh, small cell lung cancer, again, because uh, A, the vaccines are so very effective, and B, there's at least a doubling of risk of severe COVID in people with lung cancer who get COVID. So uh, to um, have that uh, vaccine on board to help you is uh, a terrific idea in my view. These are great questions and great responders. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and a question um, for Dr. Hannah, how do gene changes in small cell lung cancer affect my treatment? Well, um, so there are two types of gene changes that, that we generally think of. We think of those that you inherit from your parents. Those are called germline mutations. And then there are changes that occur just uh, as a result of, uh, you know, uh, things that occur abnormally as DNA tries to replicate. Um, the... Uh, the the mutations that occur in small cell lung cancer most commonly occur because of abnormalities in genes that are meant to protect you from getting DNA mutations. So we, we have a set of genes that are meant to sort of repair mutations that occur. We call these tumor suppressor genes. And these genes, unfortunately, are often the victims of getting mutated. And when they are mutated, uh, it reduces your capacity to repair other mutations that occur. So that is the primary driving force behind why people get small cell lung cancer. It's an impairment of the genes that are meant to help repair DNA damage. So as a result, it, it, 
you'll oftentimes have tumors that don't have one specific mutation that can be interfered with to cause the cancer to shrink. We see that uh, not uncommonly in patients with adenocarcinoma, but rather we have sort of this slew of mutations that occur and that are constantly occurring because the underlying defects are in genes that are meant to protect you from those mutations. So this is why the focus of treatment and research for small cell has been historically with chemotherapy, which doesn't require any specific mutation, but non-specifically injures abnormal, abnormally replicating cells. And now more recently, immunotherapy, which harnesses the effects of your immune system to kill cancer independent of any particular mutation. And another class of drugs that we call antibody drug conjugates. These are antibodies that recognize proteins on the surface of cancer cells. And those antibodies are bound to uh, cancer drugs that, that, that are usually chemotherapy agents. So that's why that has been the general approach uh, to the treatment of small cell lung cancer. Awesome, thank you. And so last question for Dr. Grala, is hyponatremia common with small cell lung cancer? Yes, it is rather common. Uh, what it is caused by is called the syndrome of inappropriate ADH, antidiuretic hormone. What happens is you make too much antidiuretic hormone, which is a natural hormone that we all have, and that causes you to hold on to fluid. So the person isn't actually low on sodium, although it looks like it in the blood. They're high on water. They're high on fluid. And that sort of dilutes the blood in terms of the sodium. And uh, that can lead to a, um, a lot of problems. Sometimes it's asymptomatic, but sometimes um, uh, it really is associated with problems, increased weakness, and all sorts of uh, issues. Uh, that is more common in small cell than it is in non-small cell lung cancer, although it can occur. And uh, while there are some very specific ways to treat that, the best way to treat it is to treat the small cell lung cancer, and it often gets better very quickly. Um, but it is quite common to have hyponatremia due to inappropriate ADH, the syndrome of inappropriate ADH, SIADH, and this is well known to uh, uh, oncologists uh, as, as a general rule and sometimes is even the first thing that we see in uh, small cell lung cancer. It doesn't happen in everybody, but generally treating the, the small cell lung cancer or the non-small cell lung cancer in that case uh, does good work on treating that problem of the hyponatremia. Uh, hyponatremia simply meaning low sodium. In the blood. Thank you very much, and I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been really phenomenal in this on this call today. It's it, we've done uh, calls on small cell lung cancer before, but I have to say the questions and our speakers, our array of speakers has been phenomenal, and it's just been an amazing call. And I so I want to thank our speakers. And I want to thank our our participants for asking such great questions. Now I do want to, in closing the call today, I want to recognize that there are many questions more in queue that we weren't able to take. So I want to address all the questions, first of all. For those of you who got to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who are would like to yeah, are thinking of a question you'd like to ask, please go back to your treating healthcare team with the information you've learned today and ask them the same question. What you've learned from today's call is that all your, pro all your questions are excellent and they all require a, an answer that you need. And you may have to ask your question more than once sometimes and even if you ask it and think you understand it, maybe the next time you still don't quite have the answer to it, feel free to ask the question as often as you need to until you get that question answered. And in terms of those of you who would like to get further information about small cell lung cancer or any type of small cell cancer in particular, um, lung cancer information, the Longevity Foundation is a terrific resource. And so tomorrow you'll be getting um, a survey monkey from Cancer Care. It's an evaluation of the program, but the evaluation will also include a link 
to all of the resources that we provide during the program today and even some additional ones as well. So it's an evaluation with more resources to you. And please use those credible resources that we give you to get information about small cell lung cancer. We don't want you just to hit Google and put in small cell lung cancer and get whatever happens to come along. We want you to go to really well-respected sites that really keep the information up to date by experts. That's really important and very authoritatively as well. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I don't want anyone to feel as you leave the program today that you're alone, although it is tempting and, and probably fairly common to feel alone sometimes, and particularly during this period of, um, uh, of, of COVID. I think it really um, is important to know that you're part of the community support, you're health, starting with your healthcare team, and then all the resources you're going to have to call. And we are simply, all of us, a phone call or a mouse click away. Um, and for our international participants, you can visit the Cancer Care website, and we will get you information that you need if you have questions and things like that and need for resources. Again, thank you all for your participation today, and I wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.